Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. One of the things that I appreciate without a doubt is the Word of God. And as believers, we are indebted to God for depositing His words to us. For it's by His words that our lives are illuminated. And it's by his words that we receive the good news of Jesus the Christ. And it's through his word that we learn about God and his desire for our lives. And we're living in a society. We're living uh, during a span of time where many skeptics are now given so-called evidence against the Bible being the word of God and Uh, Many scholars are attacking the New Testament manuscripts, whereby the Bible that we hold in our hands uh, were uh, transmitted from. So today I am just excited to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Craig Blumberg. Uh, He's distinguished professor of New Testament uh, studies at Denver Seminary. And Dr. Blumberg has written Uh, numerous books, uh, some of which uh, is making sense of the New Testament. For example, the uh, NIV application commentary, the historical reliability of John's gospel, as well as from Pentecost to Patmos, an introduction to Acts through Revelation. And my favorite book, uh, one of my favorites of his uh, compositions, is The Historical Reliability of the Gospel, so we want to welcome Dr. Craig Bloomberg to Sound Reasoning. Dr. Bloomberg, how are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. We are excited to have you. So my first question is, uh, this book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, uh, was written some time ago, and I wanted to ask you, what was the impetus behind the composition of this book? You're right. Uh, the first edition came out in 1987, and then we had a thorough revision and uh, update in uh, a second edition in 2007. But I have to go back to uh, when I first became a, a Christian in the 1970s. Uh, I was a sophomore in high school, and during high school and college years and into my young adult years, I tried to uh, share my faith with just about anybody who would listen, and <laughs> as you uh, explained so well in that introduction, uh, relied on uh, Scripture as my authority, and then started meeting people who said things like, but modern scholars have shown that mm. Jesus never really said such and such, uh, even though it was in the Gospels. And that threw me for a loop. I didn't know what to say next, and that launched me onto what has been off and on a lifelong pursuit of can we trust the four Gospels 
in the New Testament to give us accurate information about this man, Jesus, we worship. And my next question is, what are the New Testament manuscripts for many laypersons listening to us on the radio and on, uh, on the Internet? I'm sure that they've heard this term New, Ma- uh, New Testament or uh, t- manuscript before these terms. But what exactly is it and why should we as Christians be, be uh, abreast of that? Well, before the printing press was invented in the uh, mid 1400s, uh, the only form of writing that was available was through uh, uh, ink, uh, pen and ink on parchment or papyrus. And so a manuscript simply refers to uh, one particular uh, copy, either of uh, a scroll or uh, a, a codex, a book form, or maybe just a, a scrap of a single page of, uh, of paper on which uh, any portion of uh, one or more of the books of the Bible was written. And how did we get our hands on these New Testament manuscripts? Um, some of them have been known about and been uh, preserved uh, from the earliest centuries of uh, Christian history onward. Uh, but a sizable majority of what now numbers uh, over 5,700 uh, uh, manuscripts of some portion of the New Testament in Greek, uh, the original language in which it was written, uh, a sizable majority of those have been rediscovered uh, just within the last two to three hundred years, and they have been found... Uh, many of them in uh, burial or safekeeping places in ancient monasteries mm-hmm. or churches or convents. Uh, some of them have uh, been kept in large uh, caches of uncatalogued documents in uh, museums or uh, universities or libraries of different kinds, and mm-hmm. some of the the most fascinating have come to light as uh, archaeologists have uh, continued digging uh, around uh, the ancient Mediterranean world. I do. That brings me to another question. In terms of the oldest manuscripts that uh, we as Christians have, is it uh, still the John Ryland manuscript, or is it, or is it something else? The oldest one that we can securely date is definitely still the uh, uh, P52, Papyrus number 52, mm-hmm. often known as the John Ryland's uh, uh, Papyrus, because it's kept in the John Ryland's uh, library of the University of Manchester. Every now and then, uh, a scholar will put forward a proposal about some other little fragment that's been discovered uh, as possibly first century and uh, get everybody's hopes up of uh, (laughs) something even earlier. But so far, uh, none of those have turned out to uh, amount to what people thought at first they might. So then two questions relating to P-52 um, what era are we talking about in terms of its date, and um, what scripture passages does it contain? 
It's a tiny little scrap of portions of a few verses of John chapter 18, um, perhaps uh, ironically including the account where Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? And <laughs> dates uh, range, uh, everybody agrees that it's early 2nd century, and dates range from the 110s to the 140s, and maybe 125 is a, a good average uh, ballpark figure, as good as any. Thank you. And then my next question um, is a popular question that many Christians pose to me, but I wanted to ask you because you, uh, you've had more experience in that field. And that deals with the criteria uh, whereby the uh, early Christians uh, the rules or the standards that they use to decide which books will be chosen as inspired, which make up our uh, New Testament versus uh, those that didn't meet the criteria for canonization. Yeah, um, there, there certainly were uh, such discussions, and uh, the uh, the most common uh, things that people talked about were. Uh, uh, if uh, a book could be uh, ascribed to an apostle or a, a close associate of an apostle, in other words, uh, a first-century origin for uh, the book, um, people look to see if uh, a book was believed to be uh, internally consistent, it didn't contradict itself, and if it appeared to uh, fit as uh part of the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Christian Old Testament that was already in existence. And then a, a third criterion involved uh, widespread usage. Uh, there might be uh, one branch of the Church that valued uh, a document in particular, but if it didn't appear that throughout the ancient Roman Empire and even beyond where Christianity had spread, that uh, uh, most all churches were uh, valuing a book as uh, uniquely authoritative, then uh, uh, it usually was neglected. But I think it's also important to say that it's not as if um, initially anybody was uh, expecting uh, that there was going to be some new collection of authoritative books and began to say, right, what uh, what are our criteria going to be? Um, documents like the Four Gospels, like the Book of Acts, uh, like all of the letters ascribed to Paul, uh, emerged and simply began to be used and widely circulated, and the way in which they were treated um, and the value uh, and accuracy and authority that was ascribed to them um, quickly became uh, on a par with the way uh, uh, at least Jewish believers had treated uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so uh, there's, there's some real truth in saying that uh, these books uh, simply uh, impressed their readers as uh, qualitatively different. And then... Uh, over time, uh, over a couple of centuries, uh, people began to collect them together and and realize that what was emerging was akin to uh, the founding documents of another covenant, uh, another testament, um, and some of these conversations about criteria emerged, but uh, not until 
the books were already widely respected. Excellent. I do appreciate that. So in terms of the accuracy of the narratives of the Gospels or the New Testament as a whole, are there extra biblical sources to corroborate the claims made in the New Testament? There certainly are. Um, not for every last claim, uh, by any means. And when you think of the kinds of things that uh, you would expect to find confirmation of, uh, you can find uh, numerous individuals, uh, countless people uh, throughout the pages of the Gospels and the Book of Acts uh, who are mentioned in other documents, including at least a a dozen uh, ancient sources, not even uh, Christian sources that refer to Jesus and give us bits of information about him. Uh, Archaeology can corroborate uh, locations that are mentioned, again, throughout the Gospels, Acts, Book of Revelation, the various epistles, um, can corroborate other historical events, uh, such as the reigns of the different emperors Mm. that are referred to here and there. Um, What what other sources, uh, by definition, can't do in a world without any tape recording devices is uh, demonstrate, did Jesus say exactly what we read in Matthew when he preached the Sermon on the Mount? Um, Short of some absolutely astonishing find that appears to be uh, somebody's uh, notepad of having taken down information while Jesus was actually speaking, uh, that's the kind of information that uh, you really can't corroborate and, and you can't expect to uh, corroborate. Uh, how would we ever uh, prove uh, that he walked on the water again unless <laughs> something from one of the disciples uh, um, were to emerge that, that was uh, quite unlike and, and even superior testimony to what we have in the Gospels, which itself comes from the disciples, Um, so it's hard to know what else it would be. Nobody else was present to look at that. But uh, the kinds of public events and names and places and dates and details, um, large books about uh, the archaeology of the New Testament uh, catalog those kinds of references. Excellent. Uh, How do we explain some of the differences in the Gospels? Um, probably one at a time. (laughs) Um, That's one of the things that uh, a good chunk of my book on the historical reliability of the Gospels deals with, and it's hard to, uh, in a short period of time, uh, uh, say something that covers the the whole range of issues that you find there, but uh, it's probably fair to say that... um, something important to keep in mind, Mm -hmm. especially if you look at uh, what's called a synopsis or a harmony of the Gospels Mm -hmm. that prints the the parallel uh, columns uh, when uh, two or more Gospels uh, recount the same story. Mm -hmm. Um, All kinds of little differences emerge, and this is exactly what one would expect in the ancient world, where uh, 
levels of precision in reporting were not close to what we sometimes expect. Um, this was a world without quotation marks uh, or any felt need for them. And so to say that a person spoke uh, the following uh, and then what looks like a speech from them could very easily be uh, put in the reporter's words. Uh, it doesn't have to be somehow a, a verbatim transcript. Right. And, of course, we still do that often today mm -hmm. in, in popular speech. We sometimes expect that uh, a quotation mark means uh, word for word, and uh, some journalists uh, work harder at that than others, <laughs> Right, as I've experienced personally, <laughs> having been interviewed. Um, but then we also have to realize that uh, um, people were highly selective uh, as they put together biographies right. and histories. Right. They put things together in topical and thematic order as well as in chronological order. Right. They skipped over large chunks of a person's life that wasn't deemed as important as some other section in ways that we might not do so today. Uh, they slowed the narrative down and, and talked at great length about uh, key episodes or events, just like with Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and so if, if we recognize just a few of these traits, uh, that goes a long way to take care of a lot of the differences. And then you have uh, a small number of some of the more famous apparent contradictions that you can work through on, on more one-by-one uh, uh, -one basis. And so would it be fair to say that omission in one gospel does not necessarily mean it's a contradiction. Oh, heavens, yeah. If, if omission means contradiction, then uh, um, every uh, set of news reports about any modern event that uh, you might care to compare uh, contradicts uh, another one. And uh, that's something that we don't we don't even consider a, a contradiction in the modern world, and certainly right. they wouldn't have uh, in the ancient world. Right. I pose that question because many times you talk to skeptics, and they'll say, "Well, this gospel didn't mention what the other gospel mentioned," so that's why I pose that question. That's right. That's right. Uh, my next question is: How should Christians respond to this famous? alleged lost books of the Bible that the History Channel or Discovery Channel talks about? Um, if they have a little bit of time, uh, <laughs> probably the best thing to do is to read some of them and make an informed decision and not uh, trust what one authority says or what I say in reply. Right. Um, there are uh, a variety of ancient documents, uh, some of them uh, relatively orthodox in terms of their teaching and theology, uh, some of them very fanciful, the so-called New Testament Apocrypha mm -hmm. that add um, miraculous works of Jesus as uh, a baby and a young child. 
um, or uh, try to fill in the gaps in the hidden years of his life that we don't have in the four New Testament Gospels. And then maybe the most well-known group in light of uh, recent documentaries uh, that you mentioned would be the Gnostic texts, Mm -hmm. which basically reflect a a completely different worldview. It really was a a form of Greek philosophy with a a little bit of Christianity thrown in the mix. Right. Uh, I think the the best way to uh, help people to see that we're not really even talking about the same religion, uh, much less some earlier and more authentic form of Christianity, is... uh, to have somebody Google Gospel of Thomas and let them read it in English translation online or uh, purchase a, a collection of uh, the Gnostic Gospels in hard copy translation, and and they'll simply realize that, that we're in a, a totally different world. And so from your research, um, as we only have a couple of minutes left, yeah. um, these were not works or uh, compositions that the church intentionally tried to hide in order for uh, the contradictions not to be exposed? They really weren't. Um, There's very little evidence that uh, more than maybe one or two of them were ever suggested by anyone as uh, worth being uh, put on the same level with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Even the communities that produce them don't appear to have uh, revered them to the same extent. And uh, the reason that some of them eventually disappeared, um, yes, you can find one or two accounts in the ancient world of somebody deliberately burning certain texts, but that's the exception and not the rule. The reason most of them disappeared uh, was because no one was using them anymore, and they were not uh, considered valuable enough to, uh, to be preserved, not that people were intentionally suppressing them. Dr. Blumberg, thank you so much. As you can see, uh, there's just so much on this topic that we can discuss, and next week we will continue. Uh, with Sound Reasoning, with our interview with Dr. Bloomberg. And thank you so much, and we will talk to you again next week. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy messages has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. I'm Dr. Lauren DeVille, a practicing naturopathic physician in Tucson, Arizona. In my podcast, Christian Natural Health, my guests and I discuss topics ranging from nutrition, sleep, hormone balancing, and exercise to specific health concerns like hair loss, anxiety, and hypothyroidism. I'll also interweave biblical principles as they apply throughout the podcast because true health is body, mind, and spirit. 
Listen to Christian Natural Health for free at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcast platform.